This week on Blue 58, it's Trade Week. We dive into the weird and wild history of trades in Green Bay, including at least one story we think you may not have heard before. Plus, Jeff Janis is gone, Mike McCarthy is speaking his mind, and the narrative is destroying us all. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to Blue 58, the official podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very excited to be with you here for another episode. Episode number 75. We are leading up to the draft, but not quite there yet. We will start diving into more draft coverage here in just a couple weeks or so. For right now, as I mentioned up top, it is trade week. We are having a lot of fun talking about trades and trade-related things for the Packers. We had such fun talking trades and hypothetical trades on the podcast last week, we decided to make an entire week out of it on our coverage on thepowersweep.com. And we will talk trades and their repercussions on this week. Uh, this week's edition of Blue 58 as well. That in a second, but first and foremost, we've got to talk about a couple uh, pressing stories, maybe not pressing, but happening stories in Green Bay this week. First and foremost, Jeff Janis is gone. Goodbye, Jeff. We will always have Arizona to look back on. The Packers special teams ace and occasional wide receiver has signed with the Cleveland Browns, making that deal last Friday. Really, really Cheap, cheap deal for Janice in Cleveland. Just one year, no guaranteed money, pretty much the veterans minimum, uh, no roster or no signing bonus, no just roster bonuses for when he's active on Sundays and a $100,000 workout bonus. I am a little bit surprised that he didn't do better than that, but it shows a couple things. First and foremost, how little the Packers were interested in bringing him back and even how little he means to the Cleveland Browns. I, his roster spot, I think, is all is very, very far from guaranteed with Cleveland. He's got some work to do ahead of them, and he's probably going to have to show them more than just special teams work. Janice, of course, ends his career in Green Bay with 17 catches, 200 yards, one touchdown. He also carried the ball two times for 38 yards and one touchdown, a 19-yard touchdown against the Seattle Seahawks. And boy, that one was sweet. There is, of course, also that game. You know the one, the one in the playoffs. In Arizona, seven catches, 145 yards, two touchdowns. One of those touchdowns, the miracle Hail Mary at the end of the game. That put the game into overtime, and I just have a hard time remembering what came next. It's probably not that important, so let's move on. Thinking back, though, I, I wonder what we make of Jeff Janis's career in Green Bay. I think there are three possible perspectives that make sense here. One of them, I think, is, is the truest one. And I'll just give it away right away. I think it's the last one. But let's talk about the three here. I've seen a a few different reactions to Janice. Then I'll give you my ultimate take. First, there are some people arguing that Janice was yet another underutilized talent that the Packers failed to develop, uh, much like Casey Hayward or Micah Hyde. There are some merits to that. Jeff Janice was an extremely talented athlete. There are very few players with his athletic skill set in the NFL. He is probably the most athletically gifted player the Packers drafted in the Ted Thompson era, and they drafted quite a few athletes. I mean, if you look at Nick Perry's testing numbers, they are as good as anybody's. For somebody his height and weight, uh, just his explosiveness, his overall strength, his speed, I think Janice beats him and beats him pretty handily. He is that athletic. But there are also some problems with this theory. First, it kind of denies the reality that Jeff Janice got a lot of chances to show what he could do. He played more than 200 snaps on offense during the 2016 season. That season, he was targeted with 19 passes. 17 of those 19 targets resulted in a completion of less than 10 yards. 
Not very good if you're building your reputation as something of a deep threat. Similarly, in 2015, he was targeted 12 times in 131 snaps on offense. You know, not playing a lot, but getting targets when he's out there. About one out of every 10 snaps when he's on the field is a ball coming his direction. But in those 12 targets, he caught just two passes for 79 yards, and arguably one of those two catches wasn't even thrown to him. He just caught the ball anyway. For comparison, that same season, Justin Perillo was targeted 13 times in 115 snaps on offense. He caught 11 passes for 102 yards and a touchdown. If your best offensive comparison as this supposedly explosive, underutilized wide receiver is Justin Perillo, I think you may be more reputation than production. There is also the perspective that Jeff Janis was nothing more than an overrated folk hero who got outsized attention for limited contributions. There, of course, is also some merit to that idea. Jeff Janis did not do all that much on offense, as we outlined previously. And a lot of other players, even at his same position, did just as much given similar opportunities. There's Justin Perillo, but let's just restrict things to wide receivers. In the 2016 season, there was one game where Ty Montgomery was out due to his sickle cell trait. Jordy Nelson was banged up. So the Packers gave a lot of playing time to Jeff Janis, Trevor Davis, and Geronimo Allison. That was against the Atlanta Falcons towards the middle of the 2016 season. In roughly similar action, all three of those guys were targeted four times, and each of them ended up scoring a touchdown that day. Pretty similar. I know that's a pretty limited sample size, but it's not like he uh, drastically outperformed other guys on the field given the opportunity to do so. There's also the perspective, I guess, related to this one that well, it's not fair to just say that he, you know, wasn't much of a contributor on offense because he did a lot on special teams. And there is something to that, I think. He did contribute a lot, uh, and not just on offense. Since 2015, he had 20 special teams tackles. Um, six, over the last two seasons, he really hasn't had a lot of tackles. He's been like fifth or sixth on the team in special teams tackles. But just because of the way he is able to get down the field so quickly... He changes how other teams have to return punts. And he sets up other guys to get opportunities to tackle the ball carrier. He really was one of the big reasons that Justin Vogel set the punting records that he did this year. There was just nowhere for opposing punt returners to go because Janice got down the field so fast. The third and I think final perspective on Janice, and I think this is the correct one, is this. The Packers got a lot of value out of Janice, who we should all remember was a seventh-round pick, just a seventh-round pick, and a seventh-round pick for a reason. It wasn't like he was some highly decorated, big-time college prospect that just fell all the way to the seventh round because of some imagined problem with his game. There were real concerns with Janice coming out of his very, very small college. And his game never really developed past where it was in college. But the Packers did get a lot out of Jeff Janis. He was available all the time, save for that unusual hand injury he had. And he reliably did everything the Packers asked him to do. Should he have been better as a receiver? Yeah, probably. Should the Packers have done more to maximize his skills? Maybe, but I'm not 
sure what exactly that would be. Did the Packers ultimately get Pro Bowl level or close to Pro Bowl level performances on special teams from Janice over the last three years? Definitely. In the end, I think the Packers got pretty much all that they possibly could out of Jeff Janice, and now they're moving on. There doesn't have to be some sinister motive. There doesn't have to be some sort of conspiracy here just because some other guys went on and did some some good things other places. I think the Packers probably got just about all they could out of Jeff Janis. And we will not dive into the ever-so-wacky conspiracy theory that maybe Aaron Rodgers just doesn't like him. That is a little bit too weird, even for me. Mike McCarthy is finally saying, I told you so. As we move on to headline number two, one of the big things I had against Ted Thompson during his time as general manager of the Packers was how often he hung Mike McCarthy out to dry in the press. I don't mean by saying bad things about McCarthy or setting him up by something that Ted Thompson said. I mean by just leaving him to do all the talking about the Packers personnel moves. I am on record as being a big fan of Ted Thompson's preference to not speak to the media, if only because of how nuts it drove everyone in the media. I thought that was pretty hilarious. Just how worked up everyone in the media got about that. The flip side of that is every time the Packers did or did not do something with their roster, Ted Thompson never answered for it. And he left Mike McCarthy to answer for it. That's not Mike McCarthy's job. Mike McCarthy's job is to coach the football team, not to comment on personnel decisions. He might have some input on these decisions, but ultimately the guy pulling the trigger was Ted Thompson, and Ted Thompson never came out to answer for the things that he did or did not do. That, of course, is his right, but there are some consequences to it, and one of those consequences was that Mike McCarthy ended up holding the bag on all these things. On top of that, McCarthy very rarely spoke out about anything. Um, He didn't really give a lot of reasons ever for personnel moves. He didn't really speak in favor of any personnel moves or speak against them. And he really didn't go out of his way to recommend a lot of players. But now he's sharing his thoughts and he's sharing them consistently. Uh, Good thoughts, interesting thoughts. You can tell that he has had a lot to say and has bottled it up a lot. First, he weighed in on Demarius Randall, and now he's talking about Julius Peppers, saying the Packers definitely missed Julius Peppers' contributions during the 2017 season. And I don't think that's up for debate. The Packers could have used a guy like Julius Peppers. And you know, everybody will point to the sack numbers that he had in Carolina, but even if he didn't put up 11 sacks or whatever it ended up being for the for the Packers this year, had he stayed in Green Bay, just having some more depth to throw out there some more competent pass rush bodies would have been a big help to the Packers defense. But it's not as though Mike McCarthy has never spoken out in favor of Julius Peppers. He stumped for him as hard as he has ever stumped for any free agent the Packers have been looking to lose or have been in the in the position to lose. Last spring, McCarthy said, I'd love to have him back. What he brings to your football team is so unique. Uh, talk about a guy making a play, a big play every game. I don't know if there's a game you go through that Pep doesn't jump up and make a big play. I think he's still a valuable asset. He was also very vocal in his support and and, and uh, admiration of Peppers prior to the Packers-Panthers game last fall. Generally, he's been a fan. 
This, though, is the closest he's ever come to out-and-out out criticizing a personnel move or a failure to bring back a guy. And I think it's interesting, and I like this new side that we're seeing from McCarthy. I don't know if it's always a good thing to have your, your head coach weighing in on personnel moves as, as they happen or uh, talking about the various consequences thereof, but it is interesting, and I think it, it shows a little bit more life in Mike McCarthy uh, than maybe we've seen over the past couple seasons. Let's talk trades. Big trades, little trades, trades in between. A couple things I want to talk about here. We don't have a third main headline for this week, but I do have two sort of semi-main topics I want to throw your direction. One of the things that we we were talking about behind the scenes as we did, we put together trade week was historical trades that changed the face of the franchise. And there's one that I think a lot of people may not know about. Everyone knows that the Packers, I guess, return to prominence in the early 90s, led by Ron Wolf, was kicked off by a trade. The trade that brought Brett Favre from Atlanta to Green Bay. The Packers pulled it off thanks to Ron Wolf being willing to send one of their spare first-round picks to the Atlanta Falcons in exchange for Brett Favre, and everything, you know, worked out from there. You know the story. I don't have to recount it for you. But there was actually another trade that I think was just as instrumental in turning around the Packers franchise. That was the trade to bring in Mike Holmgren. What do I mean by that? Well, it all starts with Tim Harris. Older Packers fans will no doubt be familiar with Tim Harris. He was a fourth-round pick for the Packers in the late 80s and was a standout, standout pass rusher for his first four seasons in the NFL, all of which happened with the Packers, 86 through 1990. 55 sacks in that span, including a whopping 19 and a half in 1989. But, as good players tend to do, He decided he wanted to get paid, and the Packers had a bit of a contract dispute with Mr. Harris, I guess after the 1990 season, prior to the 1991 season. So, in the spring of 1991, the Packers decided to do a deal. They decided to trade Tim Harris to the San Francisco 49ers for a 1992 second round pick and a conditional second or third round pick in 1993. So they get the 92 draft pick for sure. And in 1993, depending on you know the conditions put on the pick, they would get a second or third. That 93 pick turned out to be a second round pick. And oddly enough, they used that very pick to move back into the first round of the 1993 draft and draft George Teague. That's an entirely different story, but I do think it's interesting to follow that thread all the way through and see see how things played out. Why were the Packers interested to trade Tim Harris? Well, like I said, the contract dispute. Well, why then did that second round pick from the 1992 draft end up back in San Francisco? Because that is exactly what happened. Well, 1991 was a bad year for Tim Harris. He only had three sacks, so the 49ers probably had a little bit of buyer's remorse. How did the Packers play into that? Well, the Packers were interested in something the 49ers had. That would be Mike Holmgren. He was the guy that Ron Wolf wanted to lead the Packers 
to the promised land. He wanted uh, Mike Holmgren to be his head coach. But there was a problem. And that was that the 49ers said that anybody who wanted Mike Holmgren to be their head coach had to fork over a draft pick. Let's read from Ron Wolf himself. Recounting this story in his book, The Packer Way, a bunch of building blocks, no, nine stepping stones to building a winning organization. I don't care about the building the winning organization part. This is just how Ron Wolf made some money after he left personnel in the NFL. So here's what happened. Ron Wolf wants to hire Mike Holmgren and the 49ers say, you owe us. When I was negotiating with Mike Holmgren, the league office called both Bob Harlan and me. An official informed us that if Mike signed with another team, he had a clause in his contract that required the 49ers to receive compensation. We had no reason to doubt this claim, so we negotiated a deal with San Francisco. He was worth an awful lot to the future of the Packers, and I was willing to pay a decent price. We began by offering a sixth-round choice and wound up giving a second-round selection to the 49ers. We'd begun the offseason with two number ones and two number twos and eventually surrendered a number one for Favre and a number two for Holmgren. I walked away pleased with what had transpired. Later, Mike and I were sitting with Mike's agent, and he showed me Mike's 49ers contract. Mike had never signed it. The commissioner had never signed it. It was invalid. We had been duped by the league office. I was livid. I filed a grievance, but it's never been settled. I learned that it does matter who you are. The league is supposed to be serving all 30 teams, but it plays favorites. When Mike was hired, the Packers weren't in, weren't that important. We don't have a rich owner who can demand special treatment. It was the way the game is played. My chair was hardly warm, and they were sticking it to me. The 49ers pulled one over on the Packers, and they got a second-round draft pick that they shouldn't have had. Fortunately, everything worked out for the Packers. But I tell this story for a couple reasons. First, there is always more going on behind the scenes that we don't see. Just today, as we record this, just hours before we recorded this, maybe not even hours, maybe just over an hour, the New England Patriots traded Brandon Cooks to the Los Angeles Rams, getting a first-round pick and some other considerations. I think there's a sixth-round pick in there for their trouble. There is more to that story than just the swap of a player for the picks. The New England Patriots don't like to pay wide receivers. And in doing this trade, they managed to get two first-round picks just for uh, an essentially a one-year rental of a player. They gave up their first-round pick last year to get Brandon Cooks. Now they send him out and get another first-round pick in return, end up with two. Not too bad. The Patriots are notorious for their hesitance to pay wide receivers. And they turned that hesitance into something that they could actually use. They decided they weren't going to want to pony up for Brandon Cooks when his contract is up, and they were able to move on and get a first-round pick, perhaps taking advantage of the Rams' desire to become an instant, instant contender. The Rams, boy, they're going for it, aren't they? Secondly, as we may see from this Cook trade or from you know, other moves around the league, every move does have consequences, both direct and indirect. 
using the the Mike Holmgren example, having to give that draft pick back to the 49ers prevented the Packers from drafting someone in the second round of 1992. That's a direct one-for-one consequence. You don't have a draft pick that you at one time did, and you don't get to make that pick anymore. Indirectly, though, it also deprived them of the capital that they could have used to move up in the draft and select another player, perhaps at the end of the first round. Maybe since they had two second round picks, they decided they'd want to jump up just a few and get back into the the back end of that first round and snag one of the three Pro Bowl players that were selected in the last six picks or so of the 1992 first round. Even more indirectly, it may just have changed the Packers' strategy around who they drafted in the second round that year. Once they ended up with just that lone second-round pick in 92, they ended up picking a linebacker by the name of Mark D'Onofrio. But maybe they could have gone a different direction had they known they had other options in the second round. For instance, they picked 34th overall, but some interesting, interesting players went with picks 36, 37, and 38. Uh, 36 was Jimmy Smith, the multiple-time Pro Bowl wide receiver with the Jacksonville Jaguars, actually picked by the Dallas Cowboys. Number 37 was Darren Woodson, a very, very good defensive back. And number 38 was uh, Pro Bowl linebacker LeVon Kirkland. Very, very good players, all three of them, but who knows how the thought process around the Packers and their evaluation of those guys was changed by just having the one second-round pick. All of these ideas, the unintended, the indirect consequences, uh, the more behind-the-scenes that we don't see, plays into something new that I want to introduce from the power sweep. The trade tracker. What is it? Well, this is a list of all the Packers draft-related trades going all the way back to the 2008 NFL Draft. We've done this as a way to keep track of what the players gave up, or what the Packers, excuse me, gave up in the draft, and what they got back in return. For instance, in the 2017 NFL Draft, the Packers held the 29th pick in the first round. They traded back to the top of the second round, sending the 29th pick to the Cleveland Browns for the 33rd and 108th picks in in the draft. The 29th pick was David Njoku, a tight end. The 33rd pick, the Packers, was Kevin King. And the 108th pick, of course, was Vince Beagle, Beagle, uh, the linebacker. In essence, the Packers directly traded David Njoku for Kevin King and Vince Beagle. Not too bad, if you ask me. We're just looking for the players that were in the draft slot that the Packers originally held when they made the deal. I know in 2017, T.J. Watt was on the board, and he went a couple picks after 29 uh, to the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm not interested in that. That's That's too hypothetical. We're just going with whoever ended up in the draft slot that the Packers originally held. So let's take a look at how a couple of these play out. We did the 2017 season. Let's jump all the way back to 2013. This was a very, very interesting year, 2013. A lot of things went on in this, in this, in this draft that played into and around with each other. Starting right away in the second round, the Packers held the 55th pick and did a deal with the San Francisco 49ers for picks number 61 and 173. The 49ers picked Vance McDonald, a tight end at 55, the Packers were able to pick up Eddie Lacy at 61, and they eventually traded the 173rd pick. We'll get to exactly what happened there. 
The Packers also held the 88th pick and did another deal with the San Francisco 49ers and picked up the 93rd and 216th pick. The 49ers picked defensive end Corey Lemonier, and uh, they traded the Packers traded the 93rd pick, and with pick number 216, they picked wide receiver Charles Johnson, who actually never played for the Packers. That 93rd pick with the Packers ends up being an interesting one because they traded the 93rd pick to the Miami Dolphins for picks number 109, 146, and 224. The Dolphins obviously wanted to jump up to pick number 93 where they selected cornerback Will Davis, but the Packers, in sliding back to pick number 109, were able to pick up someone you've definitely heard of, left tackle David Bakhtiari. They traded out of pick number 146 and used number 224 on Kevin Dorsey. Finally, the Packers traded pick number 146, which they got in the David Bakhtiari deal, um, and packaged that with pick number 173 to make a deal with the Denver Broncos for pick number 125. They picked Jonathan Franklin, the running back with that pick, and the Broncos picked a defensive end and an offensive tackle at 146 and 173. That's all a little bit difficult to understand if you're just getting the audio angle of it. But if you look at the page as we've got it laid out at thepowersweep.com, you'll be able to see a lot of how these different picks work together. The point in looking at these ones, particularly from 2013, is that none of them happened in a vacuum. Every one of these trades, except for the very last one, and that's to be expected once you get far down in the draft, every one of these trades ended up netting the Packers a draft pick that they used to complete another deal. So they turned pick number 55 into Eddie Lacy and pick 173, which they later packaged with another pick that they picked up in the David Bakhtiari trade to turn into Jonathan Franklin. Essentially, they turned spare change into a running back who looked to be on the on the path to becoming a, a decent contributor for the Packers before his career was ended by injury. Let's look at one other trade here in this tracker uh, before we move on to something else. Uh, pick number in 2011. So 2013, all those trades worked out pretty well for the Packers. 2011, though, things not so good. Um, you know as well as I do that the Packers have had problem after problem after problem with their... Um, tight end position. And I know in 2011, Jermichael Finley was still healthy and at the prime of or peak of his powers, but this could have changed the Packers' situation going forward because that year they traded picks number 129 and 204 to the Broncos for picks number 141 and 186. 141 and 186 for the Packers ended up being DJ Williams, the tight end, and DJ Smith, the outside linebacker, neither of whom was particularly effective um, in Green Bay. 129, though, the the pick the Packers vacated in that deal turned out to be Julius Thomas, the tight end for the Denver Broncos and later Miami Dolphins. And 204 turned out to be tight end Virgil Green, who has not been quite as productive as Thomas, but has been pretty 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 solid as a sort of number two tight end for the Broncos since he was selected interesting interesting stuff and I think if you look at all this stuff in depth you'll see the value of of keeping an eye on what these things on what each of these deals is as it plays out and as it continues to get better or worse over time while I've got you here we need to get something across to or remind ourselves 
as we go through this offseason. Be careful of the narrative. This is something we have tried to avoid to a great degree as we go through our coverage at thepowersweep.com. Narratives are dangerous because when you start deciding that this is just how a story played out, you stop thinking critically about all of the factors that go into a particular decision or situation or things like that. Demarius Randall is a perfect example of this. When Mike McCarthy said the Packers were playing Demarius Randall out of position, a lot of people began to look at that as a, a pretty telling indictment of the Packers and their management of their secondary and so on and so forth. They say Demarius Randall never should have been a corner. He should have stayed at safety. The Packers never should have picked him. Things like that. And I, the farther we've gotten into this offseason and the more distance we've gotten from the Demarius Randall trade, the more that's kind of just become accepted. And I think there are some merits to that. The Packers certainly didn't handle Demarius Randall and his various pros and cons, let's say, as well as they possibly could have. I think that's that's not up for debate. But it's not just a foregone conclusion, even if Mike McCarthy says so, that the Packers were playing him out of position. And I know Demarius Randall has said this. Um, he tweeted out after the trade that he wasn't really a corner. He was really a safety. He just happened to be athletic enough to play corner. Well, unfortunately, that's not what Demarius Randall actually said. At least it's not what he was saying when he was actually drafted by the Packers. Quoting from an article written by beat writer Jason Wildey back in 2015, the 30th overall pick in the first round, Randall played safety in college. The Packers see him more as a corner, which is a position of need following the departures of veteran starter Jermon Williams and up-and-coming backup Devon House in free agency. Really no different, Randall said about the move to corner. He played the position in junior college and high school. A lot of people say I move like a corner, and that just feels like my natural position, Randall said. So even though everyone is saying now that it's obvious that safety was his natural position, at the time, when he was drafted, when the Packers made the call to move him to corner, everyone, including Demarius Randall, said no, we think corner is his natural position. That has been lost, as we've all decided that the Packers are idiots for what they did with Demarius Randall. And like I said, there may have been some bad things that the Packers did and some missteps along the way. But let's not forget all of the facts. And some of the facts go in direct conflict to the narrative that we are operating under right now. The best way around that problem is to forget the narrative altogether and remind yourself of the facts as often as you can. It's going to make you a better writer, a better reader, a better listener, and it'll help you think more completely about everything that goes on with the Packers and the NFL as a whole. Stick to the facts as best as you can and find out the facts as much as you can to the fullest extent that you can, and you'll be much, much better off. That's what we'll always try to do in our coverage, and I hope that's what you're able to do as a reader and a listener. 
That's all I've got for you this week. You can find us, as you always do, at thepowersweep.com and on Facebook and on Twitter. If you'd like to reach us via email, as some of you have done this week, and appreciate those emails, we'll respond to those in a future episode. Uh, reach out to us at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Didn't mention material support during this week's episode, but if you would like to support us financially, you may do so at patreon.com slash thepowersweep to just donate some money on a monthly basis. We very much appreciate that. Or check out our Teespring store via the store link at thepowersweep.com. And as always, you can support us for absolutely free by just leaving us a review and a rating on iTunes. We do love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better and helps us all become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm John Meerdink. We'll see you next week on Blue 58.